morning is from Acts 13, uh, verses 13 to 48, uh, which can be found on the pew, in the Pew Bibles on page uh, 1107. So that's reading from Acts 13, starting at verse 13 on page 1107. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, If you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. 
He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Thank you, Annette, for reading. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strong rock and our redeemer. Amen. Does anyone know a good builder? We're thinking of having a bit of building work done at home in the next little while. Seeing if we can convert our loft, give us a bit of extra space as our children get bigger. But it's a big thing, isn't it? Finding someone that you can really trust, who you know will do the work well. Trust with something as important as your home. The stakes, they seem quite high. If you choose the wrong person, well, then this just might happen. Take a look. Right, Rodney, is there anything you want? Yeah, I want to go home. <laughs> that is all right. Look, this is the chance I've been waiting for. Now, don't let me down, Rodney. Now, don't let me down. All right? All right, Grandad, we're ready. You can start undoing it now. He's coming, girl boy. Turn, Dale. Right. Now brace yourself, Rodney. Brace yourself. <laughs> Didn't recognise them. 
That was Del Boy and Rodney Trotter from the classic BBC comedy Only Fools and Horses. Reminding us that if you put your trust in the wrong people, then it can all come crashing down. But if the stakes are high when you're deciding if you can put your home into the hands of a builder, are they so much higher when you're deciding whether to put your life in the hands of God? I guess in many ways, that's what the Christian faith comes down to. Can I trust this God, this God that the Bible points me to? Do I dare to put my life in his hands and trust what he'll do with it? Maybe you're here this morning and you'd not call yourself a Christian yet. If that's you, welcome. But maybe this is a question you're trying to think through. Can I really trust this God with my life? Or maybe you are a Christian, have been for years. But still the same questions come, don't they? Especially during times of trouble or uncertainty. Can I keep trusting him? Or is everything going to come crashing to the ground? The stakes are high. We need to be clear who this God is. So come with me to Acts chapter 13, where we have recorded one of Paul's first sermons. He's reached the city of Pisidian Antioch. That's not the same Antioch that he and Barnabas were sent out from at the start of the chapter. It's a different Antioch over in what's now modern Turkey. There's a picture of it, I think. Um, There it is, top left. Pisidian Antioch in modern Turkey, where one Sabbath, Paul pitches up at the local synagogue. And as he's a visiting rabbi, he's invited to say a few words. Only, I don't think the Apostle Paul ever said a few words. So he stands up and he starts with what they've just been reading. The law and the prophets, their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And he talks about God, who he is and what he's done and why his plans can be trusted. He shows them that the God revealed there in their scriptures is the same God who has sent Paul, his chosen messenger, his apostle, with an astonishing message of salvation. So is he worth trusting? Let's see what Paul says. And maybe it helps to see it under three headings. They're on the back of your service order if that helps you. And see first, unshakable commitment. Paul begins his sermon on familiar ground by retelling for this mostly Jewish congregation their story, the history of the people of Israel. But right from the start, Paul's clear This is God's story. Paul wants these Jews to see that their scriptures reveal a God who hasn't just sat around and waited for people to come and find him, but who's been active in history, seeking and calling and building a people of his own. And a God who's gone about that work with unshakable commitment. Let me pick it up from verse 17. 
the God of the people of Israel, chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. See him at work? He's the one choosing and prospering his people, rescuing them from slavery, overcoming the nations that threaten them, leading them to a land of their own, a place to settle and call home and flourish in. And in verse 20, we're told all this took about 450 years because God was in it for the long term, sticking with his people over centuries, patiently, doggedly working for their good, unshakably committed to them. And maintaining that commitment, did you notice, even in the midst of their failure, verse 18, for about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness. That's Israel's years of wandering in the desert, where again and again they had thrown God's care and provision back in his face, responded to his kindness with grumbling and rebellion. And though they suffered his judgment, God still remained unshakably committed to seeing their descendants settled in their land. And once they were there, the same pattern continued. After this, God gave them judges, leaders to guide and protect them. Until, verse 21, the people asked for a king. Why? Well, because they wanted to be just like everyone else, like all the other pagan nations around them. It's another slap in God's face. Rejecting him as the king who truly led and protected them, trampling underfoot their unique relationship with him in their rush to go with the crowd. And still, God sticks with them. He graciously gives them what they ask for. And when that first king Saul fails, he raises up a better king. Verse 22 He made David their king, a man after God's own heart. A king whose rule would reflect God's commitment to them, his character, his protection, his care. Through everything they'd done, all their rebellion and refusal to listen, God had remained unshakably committed to his people. He'd stuck with them, in it for the long term, refusing to quit, Refusing to walk out. Because that's the God he is. Was then. And is now. That's how this God builds. With unshakable commitment. Worth trusting. And then see second. Unshakable, unbreakable promises. When we reach King David, Paul breaks off his Old Testament history lesson. He leaves it unfinished. Partly, I think, because every good Jew knew 
that it was unfinished. David had been a good and faithful king, but he hadn't lasted forever. He got old, he died. But God had promised another king, one to follow David in his family line, someone like him, but much greater. Only, but where was he? The kings who followed had been a mess. Some not too bad, but most a disaster. This promised king had never appeared. But as the years went on, the Old Testament prophets had made clear there'd been no mistake. God wasn't finished. His promise still stood. Prophets like Isaiah, who Paul quotes, if you look down at verse 34, pointing forward to a king to come who would be all that God had promised David. But still, the waiting went on. And people had to wonder, had God broken his promise? We live in a world of broken promises, don't we? Where, yes sir, madam, service is guaranteed, but then the helpline never gets answered. Where we're bombarded with adverts promising us things that just don't live up to the hype. Where our politicians have manifestos full of promises that get quietly forgotten. Can't it just be the same in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our marriages, even in our churches? People promise and don't deliver. They let us down. Sometimes deliberately, but most of the time, because they, because we slip up, forget, handle things badly. But, says Paul, not God. Finally, centuries after King David, verse 23, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. The prophets, all the way to John the Baptist, pointed the way. And now, says Paul, finally, he was here. Jesus, the one God promised. Only, because so many of us know the story so well, we miss the strangeness of what comes next. That just as it looks like God's promise has been fulfilled... It seems to get broken to pieces. Verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Rather than seeing Jesus as God's promised king, the religious leaders missed it completely. In fact, they turned against him, plotted to have him killed. Verse 28. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And Pilate, he did a good job. End of verse 29, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. If this is God's promise, then hasn't it failed? Jesus dead and gone? Hasn't the chandelier fallen and been smashed to pieces? When the disciples saw Jesus crucified in disgrace, They had to watch all their hopes, 
all the trust they'd placed in what he'd promised, smashed before their eyes, broken beyond repair. One of the bittersweet things about being a parent of young children is their amazing blind trust. So that when something goes wrong, they come to you utterly convinced that you can fix anything. I vividly remember the day when Jonathan drove his favourite car off the table and it smashed to bits on the floor. I remember him bringing it to me, big eyes, full of tears, but convinced that Daddy could just put it back again, make everything right. But I couldn't. Some things are broken beyond repair. I wanted to put it back together again, but I couldn't. But God can. And, says Paul, God did. Verse 29, they took Jesus down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. On Good Friday, the chandelier fell. All God's promises in Jesus looked smashed to pieces. But on Easter Sunday, they sprang back together into perfect, unbreakable wholeness as Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Paul hammers that home for us three more times. God raised him from the dead. We see that in verse 33 and verse 34 and verse 36 and 7. Woven through those three more Old Testament promises, God raised him from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the Christian faith. Why? Because the Christian hope collapses without it. Because all God's promises depend on it, and without it, they stay smashed on the floor. But, Paul stresses, Jesus did rise. It's not a fairy story made up for gullible people who who want to believe in a world where things don't stay broken. No, says Paul, it's not make-believe. Look into it. It's a reality. It's witnessed by real people. Verse 31, he was seen. And so now, verse 32 We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. In the risen Jesus, all God's promises stand unbroken and unbreakable, resting on Jesus' eternal, indestructible life. And I think God did it this way to give us confidence Even when it all seems to fall apart, if we trust him, we can be sure he will never fail us. He will never let us down. And then let's see finally his unachievable grace. Because finally Paul shows us where this has all been heading. How trusting an unfailing God can free us from our failure. Free us from the need to do something we simply cannot do. Earn the right to come to him.
That's what so many of the Jews listening to Paul thought that the law and the prophets demanded of them. See God's standard, now prove that you're good enough. After all, that's what all the other religions doing the rounds in Pisidian Antioch and in our world today are really all about. See this way to make God pleased, to earn his favour, to prove that you're worthy. And let's be honest, even in enlightened, secular Cambridge, that's what's being pushed, isn't it? Prove yourself to whatever God you choose to worship. Prove yourself to the God of academic success with your exam grades or your list of publications. Prove yourself to the God of career with those quarterly targets or each new step on the ladder of promotion. Prove yourself to the God of your family as the parent of those perfectly behaved, well-rounded, happy, successful children. Or the God of popularity. Or whatever else we end up looking to, to prove our worth, to justify ourselves before them. But that only works while you manage to succeed. Because as soon as you fail, it falls apart. Sooner or later, try as hard as you can, that Del Boy moment arrives and the chandelier falls. We fail in our jobs, in our friendships, in our families. We fail to keep our word or control our anger. We fail to rein in our selfishness or to manage the addictions that get a grip on our lives. We fail. And our false gods can't bear the weight of our failure. And that's why it's so glorious that all this great plan of the true God of the Bible has not been leading to a list of requirements, but an invitation not to prove that we're good enough, but to recognize that we're not. Verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This is the heart of the good news that Paul preached. Stop trying to justify yourself and accept your need of forgiveness and trust Jesus alone to provide it. All our attempts to look elsewhere for justification, they really only point to our much greater need to be justified, to be right before the true God, who, as the law of Moses showed God's people again and again, is a perfect God, unfailing, flawless, in all he does and all he is. So failing people like you and me, we can never hope to reach that standard. All our sins, all the many ways that each of us fall short, they should condemn us and keep us from him forever. But gloriously, in this great plan of God, they don't have to because Jesus 
the unfailing, perfect one, was condemned instead in our place. The death of Jesus was not some awful, unexpected turn of events that blindsided God, took him by surprise. Look with me again at the end of verse 27. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. All along, God had planned it. Planned for the chandelier to fall on Jesus. Planned for his most precious possession, his own son, to be smashed to pieces. Broken, not just physically, but spiritually. By the terrible weight of our sin. Our failure to meet God's right and perfect standards. And God's right and perfect judgment of it. Planned it. So he could take our place. And he could give us freely what we can never achieve. Forgiveness. And maybe, maybe that's a very familiar thing to you. Maybe you've, you've heard it lots of times before. But as we close, please don't move on too quickly without being amazed afresh at the scope of this gift, what the Bible calls grace. Verse 39, again. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Every sin. Yeah? Even that. Even that sin that's so awful, you don't dare tell another person. Even that sin that you just keep repeating again and again and again. Every sin. And for everyone who simply believes. For everyone. That's why this gospel message exploded out beyond Israel, beyond the Jews, many of whom, they just wouldn't have it out to the ends of the earth. To everyone who will trust this unachievable grace, receive this undeserved free offer in Jesus. So will you trust it? Will you trust him for the first time or for the thousandth time? Let's pray together. Lord our God, you know us inside out. You know that we're full of failure. But Lord God, thank you that your son is utterly unfailing. Thank you that there's none like him. None could do what he did, die in our place for our sins. Thank you, Lord. He is our only hope. Lord, thank you for his amazing offer a free grace that we can never deserve, can never seek to achieve. In his name we pray. Amen.